0: Praise the Lord. Thank you. Thank you, choir and orchestra. Thank you all for being here this morning. Several years ago, I chaperoned one of our uh, student leadership university trips where we had a group of high school and college students that went to London, Oxford, Paris, and Normandy. uh, This few years back, and and while we were in London, we heard from several different speakers, and um, one of the speakers was a member of the royal family while we were there. It was Prince Michael of Kent, and Prince Michael is Queen uh, Elizabeth's first cousin. He's a grandson of King George V, and before he came into the room, we were all given instructions of how to properly receive someone who is, you know, the protocol for a member of the royal family walking into the room. I don't even remember what they told us to do, though. I think it was either you don't stand up or you do stand up, but if you stand up, don't applaud. It was something. All I can tell you is once he walked in the room, we messed it up. We just got it all wrong. And I was thinking, who did that? You know, and then it's hard to blame them though, because you have somebody there from the royal family, and nobody knows what to do. Everybody's on edge. You know, you just feel like I've got to get this right, and so obviously you're so nervous that you're going to mess it uh, mess it up. And as Americans, we don't quite understand this whole or grasp this idea of monarchy. Nevertheless, I know that plenty of people. Uh, are enamored with the royal family. I'm sure some of you keep up with it when they're having children, when they're getting married, and all of those things. Um, uh, A few years ago, my parents were in London uh, visiting family, and my mom and dad were uh, riding in one of those double-decker buses through London, one of the tours, and uh, they had my mom's cousin Evie was with them, and um, all of a sudden, the bus came to a stop, and the uh, tour guide came over the intercom and said, "Um, evidently, uh, there's, you know, there's been... Uh, uh, kind of a there's a commotion out here because Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip's motorcade is about to pass by well my mother I I, I wasn't there but I can imagine how my mother responded just like you can probably imagine how your mother would respond she's just cheering and fumbling with camera and you know getting it up and she zooms it in as far as she can as if she's going to see anything and she's waving you know because the Queen's passing by and probably there to see my mom but uh So anyways, later on, she looks into the camera that she zoomed in on. She zoomed in further, and I am not kidding you. There in the back seat of this car is Queen Elizabeth looking almost directly at the camera, white glove and all, waving at my mom. (laughs) My mom practically met Queen Elizabeth when she was in London. And that's like winning the lottery, right? If you're going to London, that's what you want to do. Nobody does that, and she did well, to be that close to the queen, after hearing about the queen all of her life, it was just an incredible experience. My dad doesn't say much about it, but my mom does. So, Well, today we're going to learn about someone who meets a, or encounters a, a totally different kind of monarch. He encounters the king of kings in a, in a, in a very unique way. For the last several weeks, we've been in a series called This Is My Story. And the question we've essentially been considering is, what happens when God gets hold of a life? Somebody meets Jesus, somebody meets God, what can happen? When all of a sudden they surrender themselves to the Lord, what can the Lord do? So we looked at uh, the demoniac and Gesserine who um, met, meets Jesus, and he's delivered from this horrific life where he is in bondage. He's set free from that, and now he's deployed to go and tell what Jesus has done. There was a man named uh, Nicodemus who believed that being good was good enough to be able to get eternal life. He meets Jesus and finds out you can never be good enough. That you must be born again. A woman who was caught in adultery is brought before Jesus. She's going to be killed for what she's done. But she meets Jesus. She receives a pardon. And she's able to live a life totally different from the one she had been living. Saul, we looked at last week, who is pursuing Christians in order to stomp out, stamp out Christianity. And on the road to Damascus, a blinding light, he, he meets Jesus who picks him up, turns him around, and sends him on his way. Well, today we're turning back into the Old Testament. As we look at someone who encounters the Lord. This is the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah is one of the great Jewish prophets. He served God and the people of Judah in the 8th century BC. His prophecy famously foretells of a virgin who would give birth to a son that we recognize as being prophecy about the Lord Jesus. He also, in Isaiah 53, speaks of the suffering servant, which is this beautiful picture of who we know to be Jesus. Well, it was around the year 740 BC, and the people of Israel suffer a uh, a crisis Um, A national crisis. It seemed catastrophic for many people, what had happened, although it was not unexpected. This was the year that the king died. King Uzziah was one of the good kings of Israel and Judah. There are very few of those. If you go to uh, Westminster Cathedral in London, you walk around, they tell you about all this horrific stories about the monarchs of England. Well, if you study... The kings of Israel and Judah. It doesn't get much better, you know. Uh, They they also were just wicked king after wicked king. There were, you know, after David and Solomon, before Uzziah, um, there were uh, Asa, uh, Jehoshaphat, Amaziah, good kings of Israel. After Uzziah, uh, there was Hezekiah, there was Josiah. But if you were to take the kings of Israel, Uzziah would probably fall into the category of one of the top five kings of Israel. Particularly for his godliness. He ascended the throne when he was about 62 years, I mean, 16 years old. Sorry about that. Six, uh, 16 years old, but he reigned for 52. You see, I was just mixing those two words together. He uh, reigned for 52 years over um, uh, Judah. And his um, reign brought great prosperity to the nation. It was a time of thriving for the people. But he made a poor decision close to the end of his life. Um, he. Uh, somewhat believed that the role of the priest should also be his role he did something the lord didn't want him to he was struck because of it so the last several years of his life he lived in isolation because he was a leper he had leprosy and he lived out his final years that way and dies a shameful death to leprosy but after Uzziah's death there's this period of national mourning their great king had finally succumbed to mortality so you can imagine there's a lot of questions going on what's going to happen How's this going to pan out? You know, concern for the nation, concern for their future, their kids' future, their grandkids' future. You can relate to something like that. Well, this period of time serves as the setting for this amazing encounter that the prophet Isaiah has with the Lord. What we're going to see this morning is that in this moment, in this period of time, this is whenever um, Isaiah was transported into the throne room of heaven and in a vision sees the Lord in his holiness. And what I hope you'll walk away with this morning is that when we encounter the Lord, we cannot leave unchanged. So look with me in Isaiah chapter 6. I'm going to read to you this morning uh, to begin with verses 1 through 4. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne lofty and exalted with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim. Isaiah says he sees the Lord. It's not that he sees the Lord in the form of a dove coming down from heaven. That's not his experience. He doesn't just imagine this throne room. The windows to heaven have been opened up for Isaiah, and he can see there in the throne room where the Lord is seated. Now, the scriptures pose a problem here, right? In Exodus thirty-three twenty, 20, God himself says to Moses, You cannot see my face. For no man can see me and live. And so you think, so what happened here? Did he not really see the Lord? You think, Isaiah, what you talking about? You, you know, something's not right here. Because you're alive even though you saw the Lord. Well, this is, not like, unlike, this is not unlike other situations in Scripture. Where people in the flesh saw the Lord and survived. There are very few of them. And the thing we have to realize in this moment is, um, is that God is not flesh. So he is not finite. That means something is going on in this encounter or these encounters with the Lord so that Isaiah can see what has to be a limited manifestation. So not the Lord as he really is but sees the Lord in a way that he can present himself and Isaiah might understand. So Isaiah sees the Lord and the big question in my mind is well what did he look like, you know? How did you know it was him? Was it something, you know, was it the way he was dressed? I mean, how do we know this is the Lord, you know? Isaiah doesn't tell us anything about what the Lord looks like. He doesn't say, well, he had this nice shade of hair. you know. Or what, it wasn't any of that kind of stuff. You know, He didn't say what his eyes looked like. He describes the scenery where God is, is found, where the Lord is found. So listen to the marvelous scene here. He says, uh, first of all, Isaiah says he sees this divine king and he is seated on a throne that is elevated. It's high and lofty. So you imagine these stairs that lead up to a raised platform where the throne is. And there on the throne sits the Lord. And he's wearing a robe. And the train of his robe is billowing out of the throne. And it's coming down the steps. It's flowing out into every corner of this temple palace that the Lord resides in in his heavenly courts. And inside of this temple, Isaiah says, standing above him are these winged creatures called seraphim. And they're around the throne there, and they're engaged in praising God. These are magnificent creatures, but they're not saying, give me praise. Instead, they are extolling the only one worthy of praise. And it's an incredible worship service where the song has grown to such a, just a, a critical moment that the facility starts to shake. And there's smoke coming into the temple that he's looking into and what I want you to grasp from this scenery is how this throne and the hem of the king's robe indicates this is a exalted this is a lofty this is a high king a transcendent king a raised up king he is exalted and I want you to imagine for a moment What would it be like right now if God just on his own decided, I'm going to split the skies and I'm just going to bring my throne room right down here. Can you imagine what that would be like? No, you cannot. Because we cannot even come close to fathom what that might be like. It would overwhelm us. His throne would would dwarf these skyscrapers that surround our building. It would be this high platform where God is seated. And there's this billowing out of his robes that just roll right down in here and fills everywhere to say there is no one greater. There's no one higher. There's no one loftier than the Lord God. Then around him, these magnificent creatures, not chubby cherubs, not cupids with arrows. Magnificent creatures, if they stretch out their wings, they disappear into the horizon. That's the kind of creatures that are praising God. Not small things, big things. The scriptures call these creatures seraphim. And they are made by God. They are creatures. They are created for a purpose. And their purpose is to be there in the throne room to serve the Lord God and praising him and worshiping him. And so he makes them for the task. So he gives them three sets of wings. That way the top set can cover their face. Because there they are in the throne room with this glory emanating from God. And so they're hiding their faces not because of shame... But out of honor, out of respect to the one who's on the throne. And then they have this bottom set of wings that wrap around their feet. Because when you come before the Lord God, you come with modesty. There's a certain level of modesty there. And then that other set that if they stretch out, they could fly. And they are flying. It's incredible imagery. But the most important part is not what they look like. Because I want to know what he looks like. That's not the most important part. I want to know what they're like. The most important part is the message they bring. They are shouting, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And I think it would be reasonable for us to understand this to mean that they are repeating it. They're saying it back and forth to one another in the room. This ceaseless praise around the throne. And their message is this repeated phrase. God is holy, holy, holy. In the Hebrew language, repetition means um, it's it's a way to enhance. It's a way to provide emphasis. So where you might send a message and to, you know, you text out a message, you put it all in caps. Because you're like, I don't want you to miss this. You put it in all capitals, you know. Or maybe you send the message and you put it all bolded or underlined or uh, italicized. Some of you send out exclamation points, like 90 of them, you know, on, on the message or whatever it be. That's what it's like here. Because he's saying not just Holy. God is not just holy. God is holy, holy. But even that's not enough. He is the superlative of that. So they are saying out about God, just so you don't miss it, he is holy, holy, holy. And the song being sung is so powerful, it's expressed with such force that the room begins to shake. It's a rocking place. That's the idea. Perhaps the smoke that's there reminds us of what it's like whenever God descended upon the mountain and there was this fog that was there. Or when God came upon the tabernacle and all of a sudden there would be this settled area. People couldn't tell he was there. So God's presence with the smoke that's there. Now we don't really bring power collectively to God's attributes like this. A lot of times the songs that we get most motivated about are what God has done for us. Rather than songs that are just about God. And so what I imagine is what what would that be like? What's a place that's rocking where something like that's happening? Well, you you see it a lot on Saturdays before these games at college football, you know. So college stadiums, they're getting the crowd hyped. There's this fight song that's going out. You know, there's probably smoke or maybe fire extinguisher, whatever it is, to draw attention. Fireworks. There's sandstorm playing, maybe, depending on where you go. If you're at williams Bryce, you're going to hear one side say, gang. And one side say, cocks. And it might be. Maybe it's a crass comparison. But is it the same way in heaven? Holy. Another side echoes back. Holy. The other side comes back. Holy. Has to be an overwhelming thing. Walter Kaiser offers incredible insight on the understanding, the holiness of God. Holy comes from the Hebrew word kadesh, which means Withheld from ordinary use, or treated in a special way, or belonging in the sanctuary. That's what holy means. So in worship, we have holy places. There are holy people, holy garments, there's holy water, there's holy food, holy ointment. But they are not holy in and of themselves. They they are holy because they belong to God. That's the only reason they're holy. So these are people, places, or things that are set apart for the use of God. So when God's present, guess what happens? The ground becomes holy. When all of a sudden God descends down upon the tabernacle in that inner sanctum, it becomes called the holy of holies. Wherever he is, is a holy place. And those that are called to be his own, that are set apart for him, are a holy people. Not because of their own good works, not because of their own abilities, but because God says, I have set you apart for me. So you are a holy people. And it makes sense all of a sudden that God says, be holy as I am holy. Because I have set myself apart, I'm setting yourself apart, now you set yourself apart. So God is holy, set apart from creation. He's high and exalted. When the seraphim begin to sing about God, they don't say, you know, God is loving, 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 or God is strong, strong, strong. The word they're obsessed with is God's holiness. Set apart, set apart, set apart. That's what they're saying. He is unique, unique, unique. That's the message that's being declared. There's none like him. So Isaiah witnesses this incredible sight. He's clearly overwhelmed. And this experience forces a response. Verse 5. Then I said, woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah had seen the Lord and his response is to see himself and think, what am I doing here? Let's be honest with you. When I was preparing for this sermon and I was reading and studying on this, I thought, who in the world do I think I am? (laughs) Because when all of a sudden you consider God's holiness, you realize just how inadequate you are. And I thought, what am I going to do? Walk out here and talk about God and his holiness. I'm not worthy of that kind of thing. When you really consider the holiness of God, you actually get a better view of yourself. Because we're so guilty of comparing ourselves to much lesser things, we keep the bar real low. We say, well, at least I don't do that like he does. Or I don't go there like they do. Or I've never been in a situation like that. We compare ourselves to others when we really ought to compare ourselves to God. That's the standard. A.W. Tozer in his classic book, The Knowledge of the Holy, writes, until we have seen ourselves as God sees us, We are not likely to be much disturbed over the conditions around us. We have learned to live with unholiness and have come to look upon it as the natural and expected thing. We are not disappointed that we do not find all truth in our teachers or faithfulness in our politicians or complete honesty in our merchants or full trustworthiness in our friends. We are unclean living among an unclean people. God's holiness is just so great that we can't wrap our minds around it. His holiness is not simply the best we know infinitely better. Because we know nothing like divine holiness. It stands apart. It's unique, unapproachable, incomprehensible. It's unattainable. So Isaiah recognizes how sinful he is in comparison to this great and glorious God. And he knows, I can't cover my own sin up. What am I going to do? Verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Not only did Isaiah recognize its sin, but so did the attendants of the Lord there. So they bring this coal. Now remember, the coal was not holy to cleanse him from sin. What was it? It was God's fire. Because only God can bring forgiveness. Verse 8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Remember, King Uzziah died. The nation is in turmoil. What are we to do? People have all kinds of questions. Hope is, uh, uh, you know, is, is going out right now. So who's going to carry the message? Who will go forth? Last part of verse 8. Then I said, here am I. Send me. One steady, long look at the majesty of God. And it is more than an honor to do whatever God wants you to do. Just one long look at the Lord should lead you to say yes. We not you notice that Isaiah didn't start asking question here. He didn't start offering excuses. He didn't try to set limits or say, well, I'll do this, but I'm sure somebody else can do that. Or, you know, well, so-and-so, they are much better at this kind of thing. Or, you know, God, i got a good idea. You ought to get this person. They're in a great position. He said, here am I. You know, God has a record of calling people who feel less than adequate for the task. I mean, the need for a person to do something could not be more obvious. It couldn't be more obvious that God is saying, I want you. And the person just hesitates. Do you remember Moses? God causes this bush to blaze with fire. Moses approaches it, it's not being consumed, and out of, the vo- out of the bush it says, I'm sending you. And he said, <laughs> you might be talking about somebody else, not me. And he said, no, I'm talking about you. He said, what if they don't believe me? What am I supposed to tell them? So he made it, performed a miracle in him. He put his hand in his robe and it came out with leprosy. He put it back, he did, cast his uh, staff down. It became a saint. All these things to say, oh, I'm sending you. And Moses said, but, 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 but I've never been eloquent. I'm slow of speech and tongue. And God says, who do you think made your mouth? I want you. What about Gideon? The Midianites are coming against Israel. They're wreaking havoc there. God needs a warrior. He needs a judge. He calls Gideon and he says, I want you. And Gideon says, I mean, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh. And I'm the least in my family, not me. Abraham, God promises a nation. says, I'm going to give you a nation that's going to come from your offspring. And Abraham doesn't say, okay, sign me up. What does he say? Will a son be born to a man who's 100 years old? Jeremiah, on the other hand, said, but God, I know you want to send me, but I'm much too young for this. Esther said, if I go before him and he doesn't call me before him, he's liable to kill me. God says, whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I can just imagine Isaiah, right here, I'm your your guy, it's me, over here. Don't miss it. I will go. I will go for you. And it's not because he thought that he had it all put together. Because remember what he just said? Woe is me. I am an unclean man. What happened though? He saw the Lord. One steady long look at the majesty of God. And it is more than an honor to do whatever God calls you to do. But here's the problem. Too many people can tune into the things of God without actually seeing god there was this whole group of people who lived in the days of jesus that were like this the pharisees they were all about the things of god but they they even saw jesus or they encountered him but i guess they never saw the lord their attention was 100% on themselves. They were worried with what they could do or couldn't do. They were obsessed with their own righteousness. It was all about them. They were focused on themselves so much so they missed seeing the Lord. And I don't think it's much different today. I think there are plenty of people who go to church and in the world who generally care about the things of God. And they say, yeah, you know, I, I, I value this time of the week. I have a Bible. I memorize a couple of verses. I pray before meals, pray before I go to bed. I try to honor the Lord. But in all of their religious activity, they miss God. This could be because the person is just too caught up in their own righteousness. They think, well, I'm good enough. I don't really need a God. I'll just kind of give the nod to him and keep on going. Or they know they need to prioritize God in their lives, but there's just too many distractions. I don't know if you noticed. Everything buzzes and beeps nowadays. And they thought, you know, well, you know, some of the distractions are generally good, but they keep them from actually seeing the Lord. And considering their own life in light of his holiness. Now don't get me wrong. I know there are plenty of people that are probably here joining us by television. And you say, I honestly want to see the Lord. And I want to make myself available to the Lord. But I kind of want to live my life too. You know, I don't really want to get too crazy here. You know, I want to kind of save face in front of my friends and family. That they don't think, well, he's so radical about this Jesus thing. So, God, let's just take kind of casual. I think the problem is... You haven't actually gazed upon the Lord. When you encounter the Lord, the ties of this world, what does the song say? The things of earth do what? They grow strangely dim. That's what happens when you turn your eyes on Jesus. Today I can't offer you a glimpse into heaven's throne room. As far as I can tell from the scriptures, very few people had that experience. Now I imagine people that weren't mentioned in scriptures, there's only very few of them who've had the same experience. But I believe the Holy Spirit is here in this room, and I believe he's working in your heart and working in your life so that you might see the Lord in all of his glory. The first response when we see the Lord and we see his holiness is we see ourselves and our sin. You know, when Adam and Eve first sinned, do you know what they did? They immediately tried to cover themselves. They wanted to cover up their shame because of what they'd done. They couldn't do that. They always needed a sacrifice for that. Well, Isaiah couldn't cover up his sin either. Only Jesus can do that. He sacrificed his own life so that you and I could receive forgiveness. That's what he does. So through the cross, Jesus offers a trade. He says, here, why don't you give me all the wrong in your life? All the bad things, all the evil, all the things that bring you shame. You give it to me. And on the cross, he receives those things. And he dies to pay the full penalty of it. So that you can have forgiveness. But he doesn't stop there. He also says, And how about this? I'll cover your shame. And he gives you all of his righteousness, the righteous robes of the Lord. To receive his forgiveness only means that you believe, only that you receive him. The Holy Spirit's working in your life today. You think, I I think the Lord's impressed me to do that. Would you do that today? Perhaps you're already walking with the Lord, but you've become more aware this morning of your own sin. The scriptures say if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So in seeing the Lord, you might just need to find, your plate, find yourself a moment where you can say, God, God, I'm, I'm sorry for this. I've been living with this in my life as if it's okay. And it's not. It's sin. You call it sin. God, would you forgive me for that sin? And he will. It might be that you are reminded today that as God is holy you're to be holy too and you need to commit yourself to that God as you are set apart I am agreeing with you right now that I am set apart for a purpose and I want to live that way the second response to seeing God's holiness is here am I send me are you living on mission with the Lord when Isaiah saw the Lord in his holiness he realized there's nothing more glorious there's nothing more important there's nothing that better that I could give my time and effort to. Well, what does that look like? Well, for Isaiah, it meant he became a prophet to the nation. He became God's messenger. And for you, it's to say, okay, God, I'll be your message bearer. I'll bring the good news to whoever I can. Yesterday, many of you who are members of the Gamecock Nation witnessed good news. I bet it t- take you long to share it. Well, what about sharing the good news that could actually change somebody's life? That's what we have the ability to bring. When you encounter the Lord, when you truly gaze on him, when you recognize him in his glory and in his holiness, you cannot leave unchanged. Our Father in God, we thank you so much that we worship a holy God who is set apart. We are so desperate for purity. We are so desperate for holiness, and we have it in you. And so we praise you because you deserve it. And God, now we come before you to respond. Lord, and I know that that response could look very different for each person here. But Father, help us not lay our eyes on you and leave unchanged. We just commit this moment to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God's speaking to your heart I hope you'd respond some of you it might need to be respond in faith some of it might be you might just need to gather here you might need a moment of confession or consecration before the Lord some of you it might be joining our church or following believers baptism if God's working in your heart would you respond you stand as our choir sings I'll be waiting down front as you respond